seven, Stan Phillips. Mad fans, happy Friday to you, TGIF. Well, thankfully we're out of San Diego after the last two games we played there. Had an off day, so maybe the Mets could gather things uh, in a positive way and look forward to this series against the Angels. And I'm kind of glad the Angels won last night, get that losing streak out of the way. So now the Mets won't be forced to uh, acknowledge the fact that maybe the Angels will get hot at the right time against them. I'm still looking to win this series against the Angels. But I think today is a good day to reflect about what has been going on with the Mets this season. It has been a revealing season. And you could tell that the Steve Cohen ownership has a lot to do with what's going on. The Mets outlaid almost $125 million in a 48-hour period for Mark Connor, Eduardo Escobar, and Starling Marte. And that has proved so in instrumental into the success of this ball club and possibly more than $130 million that Scherzer was guaranteed. It strengthened and deepened the lineup, a style of play, and a mindset that the Mets wanted to construct. And if you ask me, that's the key to any successful ball club, is you don't necessarily have to have all superstars. You have to have depth and you have to have the quality players at every position. And the appetizer to the flurry of signings was a meal in which Alderson, the team president, Epworth on the job as general manager less than a week, sold Kanha and his wife, Marcy, on a vision. According to Kanha's agent, Mark didn't think it was real at first. They had no GM for so long, and they didn't know what was going on there. For a minute, Kanha was not sure if he was going to be real, if this was going to be real, I should say, and they would go after other players. He did get assurances from Billy and Sandy that Cohen was going to make it as competitive as it could possibly be. And his agent, Kanha's agent, called Mark, after saying that, he really felt comfortable. They did not even talk financials. He just felt really good about what they were saying. A first offer was made shortly after. Some signing bonus money was altered. And on Wednesday, November 25th, Kana agreed to a two-year, $26.5 million contract. Escobar followed two hours, two hours later at two years, $20 million, And Marte and the Mets reached a four-year, $78 million accord on that Friday. Now, let's not fool anybody. The Mets made the largest offer to each of these players, but that was central to the plan. Cohen's first year as owner has contained a lot of frustration and embarrassments on and off the field. And we said, oh, no, same old Mets even with Cohen. But over time, we're seeing the real Cohen come to the fruition of what we thought would be Cohen. Anderson called it a long fall that included being blocked or rejected over and over again when it came to fielding ahead of baseball operations. So Cohen wanted to, in Alderson words, change the narrative. And best way to do so after the 2021 season, which the Mets averaged the fourth fewest runs in the majors and finished eight games under 500 and third in the NLEs, was to use the owner's big pocketbook. In order to change the narrative in a short period of time, you have to make some concessions, Sandy Alderson said. So am I shocked that we were the high bidder? No. Typically, the high bidder wins, but the idea was going to give away a lot of money. The idea was to sign good players and change the narrative, and that succeeded incredibly, incredibly well. And to that, I say hats off to Sandy and Cohen 
and uh, they did the right thing. Now, even after losing two straight in San Diego, in which they were outscored 20-2, the Mets went into their Thursday off day, averaging the second-most runs in the majors and the third-most in franchise history, and had the NL's best record and a seven-game lead in the NL East. Now, after a year of humiliations, when it came to hiring a head of baseball operations, turning down the Mets had become somewhat of a parlor game in the industry. Epler reached agreement to become the GM on November 15th and was officially named on November 19th and had a thought the entire time that would be verified by his new analytics department. It is hard to hit home runs consistently at City Field, and don't we know it? It was 13th in StatCast Park Factor for homers from 2019 and 21, even with Pete Alonso playing for the home team and 21st in the three years before Alonso arrived. Now, Epler, before becoming the Angels' GM from 2016 to 2020, had worked for more than a decade with the Yankees. He rose to assistant GM and held big lineups tailored for the short right field porch, lefties who could pull in the air and righties with opposite field power. It's City Field, one of the more pitcher-friendly parks, so you want to find guys who hit line drives and convert those into extra bases and conversely have a good outfield defense that cuts off those extra bases. A team is limited by the available menu and how much of an owner is willing to spend. But Cohen was willing to reach deep into his pocket. But the Mets decided early that they wanted to limit the length of contracts to retain maneuverability short and long term, especially since Francisco Lindor's 10-year, $341 million extension would just begin in 2022. So that essentially took them out of the star-laden free agent shortstop class, though they dabbled, dabbled a bit in retaining Javier Baez to play second. Epo emphasized on-base percentage, defense, versatility, and players with strong reputations as good teammates. And he's done well in that regard. And he wanted to work quickly. It was pretty much a foregone conclusion that MLB would lock the players out on December 2nd and that the freeze could go on for a while. Epler wanted to avoid having to do too much in what was to be a transaction frenzy when a new collective bargain agreement came, I should say. So this was the moment to table a manager search and employ aggressiveness and Cohen's money to begin to change the quality of tenor around the roster. Now, where was Epler to begin and Alderson to begin? Kana, in many ways, was an easy starting point. Alderson worked for the A's in 2019 and 20 and saw Kana up close. Epler with the Angels had been a GM in the AL West and faced Oakland 19 times a year and thus knew Kana doesn't give away pitches, much less at-bats. He placed a call to Hamill, Kana's agent asked how serious could be, how seriousness could be expressed, since the Mets already were behind. They were teams like the Rangers, who were strongly interested. Dodgers checked in, but Kana had gone to Cal Berkeley. He and his wife loved living in San Francisco, or playing with the A's. The Mets really did see the Giants as a threat. Epler asked if a personal visit with Alderson would help. Hamill thought it would. They put on a full court press. Hamill remembered. And Alderson said, I knew he was a guy who liked big cities and what they had to offer, so we sold two things, New York and, of course, Steve Cohen. And Epler said, walked up to Stan and said, happy birthday, we're going, going to lunch. So they got in a car, and then he flew back that night on a red eye. You know, what a way to spend your birthday. But, you know, we met Kana that day, and we made an offer very, very soon after. And they signed a player who would take a long at-bat, was serious of purpose, and could play all three outfield spots and first base. A domino had fallen. Now, Escobar was not about on-base percentage. He was a switch hitter with power, versatility, and a great reputation. 
Escobar had played for five teams, which gave Epler plenty of places to check, and the reviews all came back more than glowing about what a positive clubhouse force Escobar is. Off the charts, as far as being a great clubhouse man, he crossed every check on the Met list, and he was one of the best that some say they ever played with. Now, Epler was doing business pre-lockout from his Dana Point, California home, so he took advantage of the proximity to have dinner with Jeff McNeil on November 30th. He told McNeil that even with Robinson Cano returning from a year-long PED-related suspension to prepare to be the regular second baseman with some outfield included, in Epler's mind, he had signed a third baseman a few days earlier. Escobar's agent at the time, DJ Regafo, did not respond to a text about the negotiations. Escobar had subsequently hired former Med GM Brody Van Wagen as his representative. Epler said that the talks were direct and completed bang-bang after Connor's signing. So the Mets had two position pieces in place, plus two guys who Epler believed would help in another area of need against lefties. He wanted more. Now, Marte's agent, Peter Greenberg, estimates that he met with about 20 teams at the GM meetings in Carlsbad, California in early November. None of them were Mets. The Mets were not even uh, approaching Marte because they didn't even have a GM. Now, Alderson was serving as their rep, was preoccupied with trying to find a top baseball executive. Marte negotiations, in Greenberg's words, were plodding along before the Mets' entry. The Marlins had made a two-year, $20 million offer initially to Marte during last season, made one more try at the All-Star break, and then traded Marte to Oakland. But the Marlins were back to trying signing Marte as a free agent. So were the Rangers, who were offering seriousness and three years. The Yankees hadn't shown much interest. They were negotiating with Greenberg about another of his clients, catcher Manny Pena, who ultimately went to the Braves. The Mets didn't even have a manager yet, and Epler envisioned that whoever took the job might ask Marte, who never had played right, to use his elite athleticism to man that position in City Field's vast outfield. But what Epler most wanted was back to ball, the average, the speed, the possibility of just continuing to deepen with Kana and Escobar, plus the returning core. Now, Marte's agent said, what stands out to me is that the Mets came in in less than 24 hours, we had a deal. Now, this is where the Cohen factor was the greatest. The Mets greatly outbid the other contenders. Alderson even said, I would give Billy a lot of credit. He signed up, and that is day one, and how many days later we have all these additional players. It was great to watch, and given what we were trying to do between the time Billy was hired and the time we expected a work stoppage, the focus was on acquiring players. They had done that. But would it work to revive the offense? Now, for the type of position players the Mets had, and had more of now with their new additions, and with that new hitting coach, Eric Chavez, who I think has done wonders with the team, and he can preach how to hit, and he's been doing it well this year. They received a break beyond their control. The 2022 baseball was squishier and deadlier. Home runs, especially early in the season, were noticeably down. There was going to be an advantage in defining strikeouts, reaching base, using the whole field, and having a long lineup. The Mets had hired Chavez away from the Yankees. He had an appreciation for ever-advancing analytics of the game and could talk the language. But the Mets had assistant coach uh, Jeremy Barnes to focus on the area. They strongly believed Chavez had played more than 1,600 games, understood what it felt like to be in a major league batter's box. In a time when there was more pitching velocity, movement, and knowledge, how to defuse each individual hitter. 
There was a feeling that working with the mindset was important as anything. Now, Chavez had been perhaps the best overall player on the strong A's teams of the early 2000s. That, first with Alderson and then his protege, Billy Bean, championship an offensive philosophy that would come to be known as the three true outcomes, walks, strikeouts, and homers. But what stuck with Chavez was the attack of the team that beat Oakland in the 2000 and 2001 AL Division Series. Oakland was a walk, get on base, and hope for the three-run homer. The Yankee lineups compared to our team just had good hitters, one through nine. There was no 45-homer type guy. You just got exhausted playing them. Every at-bat, every player, there was no place to rest. They just really had good hitters, and over the long run, that philosophy plays a lot to be, to be better. In the Yankees' four championship seasons, 1996 and 1998 to 2000, 152 players across Major League Baseball hit more than 30 homers in the season. None played for the Yankees. They won with a relentless string of good at-bats that formed a group think that relieved pressure, even playing in New York. The internal belief that if one played, player failed, the next guy in the lineup, either Jeter, O'Neill, Martinez, etc., would pick him up. Buck, Buck Showalter had managed the group as the philosophy was burgeoning. So when Chavez took over, he imported one item, don't chase home runs. Instead, they wanted to emphasize good at-bats, long plate appearances, long lineup, the ability to score in an inning, a common fight against the pitcher, and thus a common bond among the hitters. Showalter was hired during the lockout, seized the unity of purpose playing out in many forms, but noted a specific area. He said the dugout treats battling back from an 0-2 count to draw a walk with the enthusiasm of winning the game. The Mets entered Thursday with an MLB high 19 walks after falling behind 0-2. They also ha had an MLB high 87 hits in those situations. They were 14th in walks and next to last in hits after 0-2 in 2021. Though they ranked 19 in homers, the 22 Mets are averaging more runs per game than the Yankees, who have hit 29 more homers and lead the majors. The Mets lead the MLB in batting average and on-base percentage. The Mets are 11th in fan grade graphs base running metric. They were 27th in 2021. That reflects Showalter's attention to the full game in detail, but also high IQ players who can handle it. Kanha, Escobar, and Marte fit that mode. So do Lindor, Louis Guillorme, and Brandon Nimmo. Alonso is the Mets' lone true homer source. But like Aaron Judge, Alonso is not a power hitter. He's a good hitter with power that will use the right side, especially in RBI situations. Now, McNeil has fully embraced the don't chase home runs man mantra and a shift-defying threat again. Plus, he is a good base runner. Lindor and Marte are dynamic players who have a chance to become the first Mets since David Wright in 2007 who have 20 homers and 20 steals, though Marte's quad injury could hamper that. The lineup is tough and deep and it is difficult to face, said a coach who has played against the 22 Mets. The back-to-ball dynamic the Mets have cut their strikeout rate more than 4% from 23.8 to 19.6, and it shows up most in the clutch. The Mets had a .238 average, .238 batting average, which was 25th in the majors last year, with runners in scoring position. It's 50 points higher, .288 this year, second in the majors. Last season, they scored 46% of runs on runners on third with less than two outs, 27th in the majors. They are first this year at 62.8%. Alderson used the term critical mass to describe having an abundance of players who fiercely fight each at-bat, and it becomes infectious to the whole group. 
Epworth said, they have decided they are a unit and together they will attack a pitcher. Think about our comeback wins. We are like a basketball team pressing, getting turnovers, getting quick layups, and then getting ready to press again. That is our place. It is a full lineup, a full team. They are not waiting for one guy to save them. The Mets, to a degree, are symbolic of the kind of game MLB is trying to engineer with rule changes, including the deader ball, notably wanting more balls in play, bolder base running, and just generally more action. Now, a veteran scout said that I find myself turning the channel to them all the time because I like watching them. Now, will it hold up? Home runs have been steadily rising all season. Will the Mets have enough power? Their 308 batting average on balls in play is second highest in the majors. Is that a sign of luck or good line-to-line hitting plus athleticism to beat out infield hits? Injuries to Lonzo and Marte showed how fragile this can be. Epworth said, I don't think we need more power. I think our approach is a very sound approach, a discipline approach, a contact approach. There is a speed of element that we have, and we have a number of players who can hit it out of the park. I'm proud of how they attack as a unit. And the Mets are playing baseball the way it ought to be played, and that is a good thing. So they got the right players with the right attitude and the right winning mentality. So we'll see what happens going forward. Now, one of the good things going forward is the ailing Met rotation is about to take its first step to being whole again. Yes, Tyler McGill will come off the injury list on Friday, and he will start the series opener against the Angels in Anaheim. His first action since May 11th after being sidelined with biceps inflammation. Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom remain on the injured list at least for a few more weeks. But McGill's return could give the Mets a boost if he can pitch like he did over the first month of the season as DeGrom's replacement. Now, it is important for everybody to realize that uh, Tyler, who was pitching well for, for the Mets during the season before he went down, and Max, and they all know what Jacob's capable of. So we have three good pitchers. Uh, and you just love the fact that they'll be coming back soon. So when you play this long, you plug one hole. I don't want to call it a hole because the Mets have some pieces that are very capable, but you get one thing back and something always, always seems to go away. I don't think San Diego, for for example, without Tatis really cares about our problems, meaning the Mets problems. So the Mets have to do what they have to do with the injuries. So McGill and Scherzer both landed on the IL in a span of five days in May. The Mets have gone 13-7 and seven while increasing their lead atop the NLEs from 6-7 to seven before the Braves played Thursday night. Now, the rotation during that span has pitched a 5.28 ERA, which really isn't that good, and that ranked 23rd in the majors. After its ERA at 3.23, ranked 5th through May 18th, the day before Scherzer joined McGill on the IL. Now, of course, the main culprit has been Chris Bassett, who owns a 7.62 ERA over his past five starts after his latest rough outing Wednesday night against the Padres. The Mets' inflated ERA also includes Thomas Zabuki's spot start in San Francisco, where he got shelled, and I mean shelled for nine runs in one and one-third innings. Now, excluding Bassett and Zabuki, the Mets' rotation on Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, and Phil-ins Trevor Williams and David Peterson have registered a 3.48 ERA, so they really haven't been the culprits. Now, McGill, who made a rehab start on Sunday for AA Binghamton, is expected to be stretched out enough to throw 70 to 75 pitches on Friday. Williams will be in the bullpen to provide a length if needed. 
Now, across the first six starts of the season, McGill posted a 2.43 ERA with 36 strikeouts in 33 and a third innings. But in the right-hander's most recent start, the Nationals tagged McGill for eight runs in one and one-third innings, which may have been impacted by his budding biceps issue. Now McGill's return will come in Anaheim about 30 minutes away from his hometown of Long Beach, California, against an Angels team that fired general manager Joe, Joe Madden this week and brought a 14-game losing streak into Thursday night, which thankfully they snapped last night. So the good thing is we don't have to worry about being the victim of the end of the streak. Carrasco and Walker will follow on Saturday and Sunday with the Mets using an off day to skip Peterson. They will not need a fifth starter again until June 18th. We got some idea of where he's going, uh, but we'll see, I guess, how the next few days play out, where the Mets are really going to be going. But the earliest that DeGrom could return from a right stress reaction on his right scapula is by the end of June. He threw his first bullpen, 19 pitches, all fastball with moderate intensity on Saturday since being shut down in spring training. His next step would be facing live hitters before going out in rehab assignment as he continues to build up. Scherzer, meanwhile, was given a six- to eight-week timeline for his strain of week. He's staying on May 18th. That could put him on track to return somewhere around, somewhere around early July, possibly around the same time as DeGrom. So as far as our two aces are concerned, we have a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks, and that's a good thing. It's nice to be able to say that. Because to be honest with you, the Braves and Phillies are really starting to put heat on the Mets and the NL East. The NLEs had lulled fans asleep with the belief that the Mets would just run away with the division. It might be time to rethink that again. After a mostly lackluster first two months of the season with the teams trailing the Mets, the Braves and Phillies have woken up and offered glimpses of threats they were expected to be. The Braves entered their game Thursday night against the Pirates on a seven-game winning streak. They had outscored opponents 52-20 during that stretch, feasting on bottom dwellers, including the Diamondbacks, Rockies, and Athletics. The four-game set against the Lowy Pirates will be followed by a series against the Nationals and Cubs, offering them even more of a soft spot in their schedule to try and chip away at the Mets' division lead, which was seven games entering Thursday. The defending World Series champs had not won more than two straight games a season before their current surge, getting a jolt from the call-up of outfielder Michael Harris. The Phillies, meanwhile, extend their winning streak to seven on Thursday by finishing off a sweep of the NL Central-leading Brewers. The last six of those wins came after Philadelphia fired Joe Girardi and promoted Rob Thompson as interim manager, which appears to have lit a fire under the team. The Phillies also had an easier schedule coming up with their next 11 games against the Diamondbacks, Marlins, and Nationals. Now, the Phillies are nine games back at the Mets. Now, the Mets won't get their first crack at Noah Syndergaard when they face the Angels this weekend. Syndergaard had been on track to face his old team on Sunday for the first time since he turned down its $18.4 million qualifying offer to sign a one-year $21 million deal with the Angels last offseason. But Angels interim manager Phil Nevin told reporters Thursday they are pushing Syndergaard's start back to Tuesday to give him extra rest. After throwing just two innings over his final two seasons with the Mets because of Tommy John's surgery, Syndergaard has a 3.69 ERA across his first nine starts this season. So we're going to miss Noah. I uh, kind of was looking forward to uh, seeing him, but what are you going to do? We'll have to wait till the next time. Okay, now it's time for a shameless plug. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, please do subscribe. We have one up every day for you and your listening pleasure. 
And if uh, you're not a member of the baseball group, New York Mets Baseball Way of Life on Facebook, please do join. We have a new, well, we have a lot of great people participating every day. Nothing new, really, except the new stories coming about. And uh, you really should join that. And if you ever need to reach me personally, I'm at philstan41 at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you, positive, negative, anything on your mind. Shout out a line. Now, as always, we're going to do today's Mets trivia and Jeopardy question of the day. Are you ready? Okay, looks like you guys are. That's good. Good, 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 as they like to say. Today's trivia question is, the Atlanta Braves were involved in another frightening play in 1973. Met pitcher John Matlack was struck between the eyes by a liquid, wicked line drive. Which Braves player hit the drive that fractured Matlack's skull? And today's Mets final jeopardy. Two clues. He played five seasons in their minor league system, getting his first shot at the majors in April 1980. Second clue played 18 games and two different stints in New York, going 5 for 24. He was left off the Mets major league roster that winter and was selected by the San Diego Padres in the Rule 5 draft. We'll be back at the end of the podcast to tell you all about it. And so I'm going to lock in your answers. Let's see how you do. Now, on this day in 1969, the Mets were really starting to pour it on as they won their 11th consecutive game, a 9-4 victory over the Giants at Candlestick Park, to establish a franchise record. Later in the season, the Amazons will also post a 10-game streak from September 6th to 13th and a 9-game winning streak from September 21st to October 1. So the Mets really did some streaking in 1969. On this date in... uh, 1995, unfortunately, we lost the great Lindsey Nelson, Hall of Fame announcer Lindsey Nelson, who for 17 years, along, along with Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner, made up the original broadcast team for the expansion Mets in 1962, and he died of complications of Parkinson's disease at 76. In addition to doing play-by-play for the Giants from, 69, from 79 to 81, the colorfully attired announcer also called football games, including 26 cotton bowls, five sugar bowls, four Rose Bowls, and announced syndicated Notre Dame gridiron contest for 14 years. He was one of the best in his time, and we remember Lindsay. Also passing away on this date was uh, Cordell Washington, solid hitter. He passed away this day in 2020. He's a former Met. Now let's not forget to celebrate the birth of Ken Singleton, who got his career start with the Mets, born this date in 1947. As far as Met transactions are concerned, on this date, the Mets purchased Bob Shaw from the San Francisco Giants on June 10, 1966. They traded Jack Hamilton for the Angels for Nick Wilhite on 1967, June 10. And they signed free agent Doug Zisk, 1980. On this date, they signed free agent Eric Gunderson, 1993. And they traded Sean Gilbert to the Cardinals for Wayne Kirby in 1998. And they selected Colin Holderman. Yes, he's with the club now back in 2016 in the ninth round of the free agent draft. So there you have it. Those are your big signings, transactions, etc. for this date in Met history. Well, that's going to wrap up today's podcast. But before we do that, let's give you the answers to the trivia and Jeopardy question. Shall we? Yes, we shall. Today's trivia question was once again. The Atlanta Braves were involved in another frightening play in 1973. Met pitcher John Matlack was struck between the eyes by a liquid line drive. 
Which brave player hit the drive that fractured Matlock's skull? Well, the correct answer is Marty Perez. Congrats to Kareem Hayward on being the first to submit the correct answer. And today's final Jeopardy, two clues. He played five seasons in their minor league system, getting his first shot at the majors in April 1980. And the second clue was played 18 games in two different stints in New York, going five for 24. He was left off the Mets major league roster that winter and was selected by the San Diego Padres in the Rule 5 draft. What is the correct answer? It's Mario Ramirez. Congrats to our good buddy John Tierney on being the first to get that answer correct. Well, that wraps up another podcast, and we'll be telling you to watch Apple TV Plus tonight. That's the exclusive home of Met Baseball on TV tonight for the return of Tyler McGill. Uh, the Angel pitcher is yet to be determined. Should be a good one. It's the 38-21 and 21 Mets against the 28-31 and 31 Angels. Game time at 9.38, and we'll be back to talk about it all day tomorrow. So check back tomorrow, and we'll have a recap of the game and other good Mets stuff. Take care, everybody. Enjoy your day, and let's go Mets, and thanks for listening.
Amazing baseball, baseball and the Mets. I'm talking baseball, baseball, baseball and the Mets. Amazing baseball.